Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. For more than a year, the President of the United States has claimed the Russia story is a hoax. Now, a stunning indictment says it is not, no matter what the President has been saying again and again and again. The Russia story is a total fabrication. It's just an excuse for the greatest loss in the history of American politics. This Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. The entire thing has been a witch hunt. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes or no is on a it? ruse. I've been in office now for 11 months. For 11 months, they've had this phony cloud over this administration, over our government. It's a Democrat hoax that was brought up as an excuse for losing an election that, frankly, the Democrats should have won because they have such a tremendous advantage in the Electoral College. So it was brought up for that reason. Well, keeping them honest, the president's case that this is a witch hunt, a ruse or a hoax just got weaker. A new string of indictments from Russia's special counsel Robert Mueller's grand jury seized to that. Now, we should say that indictments are not convictions and allegations are not proof. That said, they do pack quite a punch. They hit on a day that saw another alleged Trump mistress and mistress payoff scheme come to light. A day that also saw the FBI admit to fumbling a tip that might have prevented the Parkland school shooting. A day that ends with the president visiting survivors and first responders there tonight. It's been quite another Friday news day, dominated now by the indictment and the president's less than honest reaction to it. The indictment names 13 Russians for meddling in the 2016 presidential election to help make Donald Trump president, alleging they communicated with unwitting people tied to the Trump campaign. According to the Department of Justice, not a hoax. And although Jessica Schneider will get into more detail shortly, and so will our panels, here's the nub of it. It alleges that these 13 Russians, including a tycoon known as Putin's chef, using an online organization operating out of St. Petersburg, Russia, conspired to illegally disrupt the very thing that makes a democracy a democracy. Reading from the bill, quote, Defendant organization had a strategic goal to sow discord in the U.S. political system, including the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Defendants posted derogatory information about a number of candidates, and by early to mid-2016, defendants' operations included supporting the presidential campaign of then-candidate Donald J. Trump, Trump campaign, and disparaging Hillary Clinton. According to the Justice Department, not a hoax. Here's Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announcing the charges. The defendants allegedly used that infrastructure to establish hundreds of accounts on social media networks such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, making it appear that those accounts were controlled by persons located in the United States. They used stolen or fictitious American identities, fraudulent bank accounts, and false identification documents. The defendants posed as politically and socially active Americans advocating for and against particular candidates. They established social media pages and groups to communicate with unwitting Americans. They also purchased political advertisements on social media networks. The Russians also recruited and paid real Americans to engage in political activities, promote political campaigns, and stage political rallies. In other words, not a hoax. A short time later, the president tweeted, and after the tweet, the White House then issued a statement. But first, the tweet, quote, Russia started their anti-U.S. campaign in 2014, long before I announced that I would run for president. The results of the election were not impacted. The Trump campaign did nothing wrong. No collusion. Ten minutes later, the statement from the White House, unlike the tweet, one portion of it does make mention of the country, not just the Trump campaign or his victory or himself. Quote, we must unite as Americans to protect the integrity of our democracy and our elections, says the president in the statement. 
The rest, though, is along these lines. Quote, it's time we stop the outlandish partisan attacks, wild and false allegations and far-fetched theories, which only serve to further the agendas of bad actors like Russia and do nothing to protect the principles of our institutions. In other words, Russian meddling isn't the problem. Calling light to the meddling is. Investigating it is, in their opinion. Going by the president's statement, it seems that even saying that it happened damages the very institutions we should be protecting against a threat that has certainly not gone away. And keeping them honest, actually stopping the next attack does not seem to be a priority. Listen to FBI Director Christopher Wray before the Senate just three days ago. Has the president directed you and your agency to take specific actions to confront and blunt Russian influence activities that are ongoing? Uh, we're taking a lot of specific efforts to blunt uh, Russian efforts. directed effort. by the president? Uh, not, not as specifically directed by the president. So according to the President Trump's hand-picked FBI director, the president has issued no specific orders to confront another attack on the democratic process. It would almost seem as though the president were focused on something far bigger and far more important, himself perhaps. Take a look again at the tweet that the president first sent. Decide for yourself. Russia started their anti-U.S. campaign in 2014, long before I announced that I would run for president. The results of the election were not impacted. The Trump campaign did nothing wrong, no collusion. Keep it honest, only the first part is factually correct and only partially. The indictment itself on page four says their strategic goal was to sow discord in the U.S. Political, in the US political system, not just help candidate Trump. So when it began, it doesn't prove anything. As for the president's claim that the indictment says the election's outcome was not impacted, that is completely false, as Rod Rosenstein pointed out. There's no allegation in the indictment of any effect on the outcome of the election. Well, nor does the indictment speak at all, one way or the other, to collusion. There's no allegation in this indictment that any American had any knowledge. No allegation in this indictment. The deputy attorney general used that phrase or variations of it a number of times, suggesting perhaps there may be other indictments of other people in this matter or beyond something the indictment itself suggests. I'm quoting from page two. From in or around 2014 to the present, defendants knowingly and intentionally conspired with each other and with persons known and unknown to the grand jury to defraud the United States by impairing, obstructing, and defeating the lawful functions of the government through fraud and deceit for the purpose of interfering with the U.S. political and electoral processes, including the presidential election of 2016. With persons known and unknown to the grand jury, we'll ask our legal experts more about that, but perhaps that most damning indictment, to borrow a word of the president's claim of vindication, is plain to see to anyone who follows the news, and we know this president does obsessively. This indictment only addresses one aspect of the Russia affair, the social media influence operation, not the hacking of the DNC nor the leaking of dirt about John Podesta and Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with the Russians promising such dirt, nor his excitement about it, nor Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort's role in it, nor Manafort's money ties to Russian-linked organizations, nor anything former campaign advisor George Papadopoulos might be saying to special counsel Mueller now that he's a cooperating witness nor what Manafort Deputy Rick Gates may say if, as we're now reporting, he consummates a deal with the special counsel. Today's indictments, which are significant in their own right, say nothing about that. They only add to a body of evidence that whatever else this investigation adds up to, it is certainly not over. It certainly clears no one, least of all the president, and it certainly is no hoax. Joining us now with more of all this is CNN's Jessica Schneider. So, Jessica, just walk us through exactly what is in this indictment. Anderson, this is a 37-page exhaustive examination of how 13 Russian nationals orchestrated what this indictment calls, quote, information warfare against the United States. And really, the goal here was simple. Damage Hillary Clinton and elect Donald Trump. And these Russians allegedly went to great lengths. They started this operation back in 2014, and several of them at that point even traveled here to the United States. They posed as Americans as well as U.S. social activists, and they talked to people here, and they learned from that that they should focus their efforts in those so-called purple states like Colorado, Virginia, Florida, and even the Russians operating abroad. They also faked American identities, and they launched social media events and hashtags, and they even wired money on several occasions to grassroots political groups 
who are holding events right here in the U.S. You know, this operation, it spanned years. It also had hundreds of employees in Russia. They even worked shifts that coordinated with U.S. time zones to send out their messaging. And the budget for this organization allegedly totaled millions of dollars each year. And, you know, Anderson, the indictment even says that they reached out to Trump campaign officials via email on at least at least three occasions. But we did hear from the deputy attorney general today. He made the point to say, of course, that there is no allegation in this indictment that any American was a knowing participant in any of this alleged legal activity. That presumably, of course, includes the Trump campaign. Anderson? Right. In this particular indictment, what right. does this mean for Mueller's larger investigation? Well, this is really the first time that the special counsel has laid all of this out in detail, how the Russians interfered in this 2016 election. Of course, that was part of the special counsel's probe to look into Russia meddling in addition to any possible collusion with the Trump campaign. So up to this point, and especially today, Robert Mueller's team, they have been very systematic in how they presented their case, their indictments, arranged these guilty pleas. And really, this indictment, Anderson, as I said, it was 37 pages. It shows just how intricate their work has been, how wide-ranging it is, and how many detailed facts that they have already uncovered here. So it does remain to be seen, and it, it begs the question, how much more of this is yet to come? Anderson? Yeah, I mean, for all that talk about uh, this being close to the end of the Mueller investigation, you know, we were told that around Thanksgiving, maybe around New Year's, uh, it seems like there's more to come. Yeah, there was a lot of detail in here, a lot of detail about how these Russians were so intricately involved in this election campaign. It was interesting how they disclosed that they did reach out to campaign officials. Again, the, the indictment saying nothing about Americans knowing about any of this, knowing that they were targeted. But Robert Mueller has been very systematic about this. And it will, you know, we've been surprised really at every turn here. And yeah. there could be a lot more here. Anderson. Yeah, Jessica Schneider, thanks very much. Let's go next to CNN Senior White House Correspondent Jeff. Zeleny, who's standing by. I understand the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein briefed the president on this today before he made the announcement. Is that correct? Anderson, he did indeed. And this is uh, when you take stock of everything that's happened this week, this meeting is really unlike many other. The Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who's been in the crosshairs of this president because he oversees this investigation, for all intents and purposes, he is the Attorney General in this case. He is the leader of the special counsel. Uh, investigating this whole uh, Russian meddling case. So he was side-by-side, face-to-face, with the president in the Oval Office today, giving him a briefing about these indictments before they came down. Now, of course, we saw the president interpret this as he would like. We saw the president saying, look, there's no collusion here. He said that on social media in the statement uh, from the White House. The president has not yet talked about this. He uh, ignored questions as he left the White House and he flew down here to Florida where he's spending a three-day holiday weekend and also visiting with uh, some victims of that shooting earlier this week. But Anderson, that meeting still leaves questions open. Does the president still want to dismiss Rod Rosenstein? Does he still want to get rid of him? That has been one of the most tense relationships in Washington here. And even though the, uh, the briefing happened um, at the White House, there's no um, sense of, of what is next here, because this is just the beginning of this, the beginning of the public indictments here, uh, far from the end, Anderson. Well, also, Jeff, l- let's be real about this. I mean, the president's reaction was that it was all about him. Uh, the reality is, according to right. these indictments, this was a, an act of, of war, essentially, informational warfare uh, launched against the United States starting in 2014, incredibly successfully, and according to all accounts, will continue in the next election. And we heard nothing from the president of the United States today about what the heck he is actually doing about it. It was all just about him and no collusion. It said nothing about how America is going to defend itself and what he is doing. It didn't, Anderson. And it also striking, the president said, look, this started in 2014. So he acknowledged, actually, for the first time, this is a problem, which is something the president has rarely done. He has placed blame on hacking and meddling on a variety of places, rarely talking specifically about Russia. I remember being in a Vietnam last November when the president met with Vladimir Putin, and he said he believed his denials that he was not involved in Russian meddling. Well, now we know that his Justice Department, the United States Department of Justice, issuing these 13 indictments, things that they believe that they can stand trial on, that they do not believe what the president is saying. But you are absolutely right, Anderson. The president did not 
talk about the greater American election system here, did not talk about the integrity of that nearly as much as his own uh, case. But since he did talk about his case, let's point out something else he did not say. He said no collusion. Of course, no mention of obstruction of justice. That is a central part of this investigation going forward here. Did the president of the United States, Donald Trump, obstruct justice in the firing of FBI Director James Comey? That, of course, is yet to be determined by the special counsel. The president would like to uh, sort of wipe this aside and essentially say this is over. That is not the case, of course. So this is the first of many here. Uh, the White House, uh, you know, again, hoping that uh, this goes away. It won't go away. But this coming on the same week, Anderson, that all members of the intelligence community, all the leaders of the U.S. intelligence community sat in a row and said, yes, we believe Russia meddled in the election. Still tonight, the president is one of the only leading politicians in Washington who has yet to acknowledge that. Yeah, Anderson. Jeff Zelny, thanks very much. Uh, we should point out after that Vietnam trip that Jeff re referenced in which the president did say, uh, you know, he'd asked Vladimir Putin about it repeatedly, and Putin had repeatedly said, that, you know, that, that he did not uh, meddle. And the president did, in fact, say that he believed him. He later backtracked on that because there was such an, an uproar about it, saying, well, I believed he believed he was saying that or he believed that words to those effects. And he said, I, uh, I go along with our intelligence community. I want to bring in the legal and political experts, Matthew Rojansky, uh, Carrie Cordero, CNN's Shimon Prokupes, who's done a much uh, reporting on all things Russia for us, also CNN political analyst and New York Times White House correspondent Maggie Haberman. Before we kind of delve into a lot of the details of which we want to, I just want to quickly go around and for each of you to say what you think the headlines are and really stands out, Shimon. So for me, certainly, as someone who's been covering this story and covering this case, is the work that went into this and the penetration that the FBI and our intelligence partners were able to, they successfully penetrated this entire operation. They knew everything they were doing, and it's so detailed and so specific in this indictment, and it's, it, it takes a lot for the FBI and for the Department of Justice to reveal these kinds of details, because it essentially gives away what they know and how... Right, it sounds like intercepts, uh, I mean, cyber, cyber communications, they, they were in there. That's a, they were in there. They, they were reading their emails. Uh, they knew where they were located in this town in St. Petersburg. They knew everything. They knew when they were traveling. There were two individuals who were part of this operation that traveled to the United States. They knew when they came here, p perhaps uh, granting them visas, knowing they were coming here for the reasons they were coming here. It is stunning in the level of detail that went into this piece of document. This is rare, and it's rare for the, for the U.S. government to allow this kind of information uh, to be made public. Carrie Cordero, for you. I think the key of this indictment is the word conspiracy. What the indictment lays out is that there was an organized conspiracy amongst an organization with the knowledge of the Russian government, because this could have never happened without their knowledge, that was organized. It was funded. It was strategic. It involved identity fraud. It involved uh, financial fraud, identity theft. This was organized, and it was um, a strategic effort to influence the U.S. democratic process. And I think what the American people need to take away from this is that this was a national security threat that was directed at the American people, and it is ongoing, as we've learned from the other intelligence community threat briefings. And from the Russian recently. perspective, cheap and successful. Uh, Matthew? Yeah, so the, the genius of this type of operation, Anderson, which is not unlike what the Russians are doing now in Syria, what they're doing in eastern Ukraine, is that it doesn't have the external markers of a government operation. There are no patches on arms, there are no official uniforms, there are no acknowledgments by government officials. Even today, the foreign ministry spokesman repeated the word absurd. It's absurd. It's absurd to accuse the Russians of meddling in this way. And yet it has all the hallmarks of a Russian intelligence operation whose mission and purpose we can speculate about, but certainly it was to cause chaos to stir up a problem for the United States at a sensitive moment. Uh, maybe it was some of this idea of revenge for what they believe the United States has tried to do to them in their elections. So it has all the hallmarks of the Russian government trying to act, and yet it still maintains this veneer of deniability so that domestically and internationally, Putin can go around and say, this is absurd, it never happened. Maggie Haberman, what stands out to you? I think I agree with everything that's been said, uh, particularly Shimon's point about the level of detail, which I think is really striking and indeed very rare uh, for this kind of an indictment. Um, I'm struck by the fact that this is a reminder once again of how much we really can't see into what Robert Mueller's team is doing. I mean, th this came, I think, out of the blue for a lot of people, certainly did for the White House, certainly did for the president's lawyers. And so this is a reminder that while they feel, you know, at the moment, or at least are saying that they feel vindicated, that this bolsters their argument, um, that there was no 
collusion. We don't know what is yet to come. We have no idea how many other pieces uh, there are of this. The other, the other aspect of this indictment that really struck me is the degree to which the messaging um, that that this Russian, op Russian allegedly, uh, you know, Russian-funded operation engage in in terms of uh, its political tactics, in terms of its targets, in terms of trying to bolster people like Jill Stein, a third-party candidate, really, really paralleled what the Trump campaign was doing. It was really striking to read it. Even Bernie Sanders, um, which also was something mm -hmm. that, you know, we heard the Trump campaign talking about, Donald Trump talking yep. about. Uh, Maggie, I mean, you saw, you know the president's tweets very well. You've interviewed him a lot. You saw the president's tweet today. He's pinning his pushback on the fact the indictment refers to Russian activity as far back as 2014, before he was a candidate. But again, it, 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 it maybe seeing that tweet seems normal to people at this point, but in any other administration <laughs> right. in which the Department of Justice had just announced the, this detailed massive attack on the U.S. on U.S. democracy uh, that the president made it all about himself and nothing about defending the country seems. I mean, in a normal administration, that would be extraordinary. Well, this is a, this is this is not normal, and this is not a normal statement. Um, it just it just objectively is not. Um, and what he is doing again is conflating himself with the institutions that he represents and serves. He doesn't see it as serving. He sees this all constantly at least in part, at least the public-facing aspect of what he says, is about, you know, this is, this is trying to undermine my win. This is all trying to undermine my win. And as we know, he has a habit of stretching the truth. He has a habit of uh, telling falsehoods. He has a habit of lying. He has a habit of saying that statements that, you know, other people make say something other than what they say. You saw and you ran um, portions of Rod Rosenstein's remarks. They don't say what the president says they said. And frankly, the fact that this operation began in 2014 when the president wasn't running yet, I would say two things to that. One, he was publicly flirting with running at that point. People knew it. But we know that a lot of this was about disruption and, frankly, about being against Hillary Clinton um, in large measure. It, it's sort of a straw man. Either there was collusion or there wasn't. And, so, and why either his campaign officials were involved in, in this or they weren't. And, and this has nothing to do with it, whether it was pre-2014 uh, or not. And, and there's nobody in the White House who says, you know, Mr. President, it's not about you. For God's sakes, it's about the country. Um, I think that there are people who have articulated that point, but frankly, I think at this point, people in the White House consider it a victory if they can keep him from attacking Robert Mueller, and this is yet another day where they managed to do that despite this indictment. Um, Carrie, I mean, the, the deputy attorney general uh, was very careful to only refer to this indictment today, leaving open the, uh, the possibility of, of more to come, leaving open the possibility of collusion, leaving open many possibilities. I do. I think we're mid-game. I don't think we're even, you know, near the seventh inning stretch yet of the baseball game. I mean, there's there's more to come. And I think what the deputy attorney general did today really was quite remarkable. And he's taken a lot of criticism for his role in writing the memo to fire Director Comey. But what he did, he stood there alone in front of the podium. And normally in a big national security case with an indictment, you'd have the attorney general, you'd have some of the FBI people, maybe members of other agencies, and they all get together and they sort of, it's, it's a big deal in that kind of press conference. And Rod Rosenstein standing there alone so that he would take the political cover so that the prosecutor, the special counsel and his team can continue to do their work behind the scenes, I really would think was a notable um, achievement for him today. It's interesting, Shimon, uh, a number of uh, Donald Trump supporters have been out uh, publicly saying, well, look, they, uh, the, you know, they, they, they did things against President Trump once he was elected. They encouraged anti-Trump demonstrations. Once he was elected, it was about sowing more discord uh, and, and disorganization. Uh, but a lot of the support during the campaign was for the Trump campaign. There was a, a pro-Hillary Clinton rally. It was sort of American Muslims in which American Muslims for, for, for Hillary Clinton signed saying with fake quotes from her about Sharia law being sort of you know, possibly a good thing for, for the United States and support for Jill Stein uh, and even pushing Bernie Sanders. Yeah, this, this is what they, they were successful here. I think if you talk to anyone, uh, the Russians were successful in, in what they were trying to do. Uh, you know, the former head of the uh, National Intelligence Agency, uh, James Clapper, said so. The former CIA director said so. They were very successful. And, and just another thing on this indictment, I think part of why this is out now is we, there is a lot of concern within the intelligence community that this is going to continue. And this sends a message to the Russians with this level of detail that we're on to you and we're going to know what you're doing and when you're doing it and how you're doing it. And that is sort of the, the reason why 
it is my belief that some of this has come out in the way it is. And, and the other issue, Anderson, and I think you raised this in, your, in the open here, about how we had heard nothing uh, about this in terms of from the president defending the, the, us, the, our country. In other situations like this, when we had the North Korea hack, the Sony hack, President Obama, there were sanctions, and there weren't even any charges related to that. The Department of Justice uh, never announced any charges. Uh, there were Chinese hackers uh, that the, we, uh, there were sanctions as a result. We have, when these kinds of uh, nation-state indictments, when charges are brought against people believed to be acting uh, against our interests, of people associated with that are directed by a nation or state, you usually see something from the White House. Well, Matthew, some I mean, and, and not only that, I mean, you know, Congress uh, overwhelmingly passed uh, right. more sanctions against Russia. That's something that the president has not actually followed through on. Right. And their, ex- their excuse has been, well, just the threat of it has had an impact. It- it's hard to imagine that there can't be, won't be some action from the White House now based on what his own Department of Justice has said. Well, so the, the link that's missing in this whole story, and, and I want to be clear here, there's sort of plenty of blame to go around. It, it is true pre-2016 election that the link was missing between we clearly had eyes on what the Russians were doing. Right. We understood both in an intelligence and then potentially in a law enforcement sense that bad stuff was being done in the United States that might rise and ultimately I think did rise to the level of a hostile act, maybe even an act of war. Where the breakdown is in... How do you conduct relations with the world's other major nuclear power in order to manage that threat by deterrence, by negotiation? So do you do some kind of agreement that says we're not going to do certain things, you're not going to do certain things, we know what you're up to? Or do you deter them? Say, if you do this, this will happen to you, and it's scary enough that they're actually deterred from doing it. But we cannot forget that if this is a hostile act directed by the Russian government, which it really smells like in every way, and this indictment's crystal clear about that without saying it, then it exists on a spectrum of conflict with Russia. And that spectrum includes kinetic conflict and nuclear conflict. And, and Kerry, again, this indictment really only focuses on one aspect of meddling. It doesn't focus on uh, the, the hacked emails of the DNC or John Podesta or, or uh, other potential aspects. It doesn't cover those. But what's interesting is not o- it isn't only limited to the social media aspect. That's most of it. But what I think people need to understand is that it also covers physical interaction, human interaction that took place between these Russian online personas, which were fake personas, and real Americans here in the United States who thought that they were dealing with other Americans. In other words, this Russia propaganda um, unit was contacting actual Americans to set up protests, to set up rallies. Hiring people people, actually setting up. They were in states in the United States setting up real live events. Suppress African-American turnout uh, during the election. Yes. So they were. So there is an online component. But then they're also they've translated it into actual physical activity and affecting human behavior here in the United States. Maggie, the question of whether we'll hear more from the president uh, on Twitter over the weekend about these indictments. I mean, uh, I, obviously, there's there's no way to tell, or if there will be some sort of more organized response from from the White House. I don't think there will be a more organized response from the White House. I think that whether the president responds candidly is going to depend on what the weather is like in Florida over the next two days, and if he is able to go out and go golfing, or if he is he's sitting at Mar-a-Lago um, watching the news. I mean, again, to your point. His tweet uh, was very, very self-directed. It was not about and, and inwardly directed and about him. It had nothing to do with democracy, preventing elections. We have had every warning sign from the uh, intelligence uh, community over the last week. And prior to that, that this is going to be yet another year where Russia is trying to interfere. You had Vladimir Putin the other day uh, say uh, to uh, uh, a Palestinian leader that he had Trump's uh, proxy to speak on a particular issue. That that provoked almost no response from the White House. I mean, you are going to keep seeing these kinds of things. And if the White House does not respond, um, they will only increase, I suspect. And so I, I do not think the White House is going to change its course again. I think so much of what you saw today in terms of the response was about keeping the president from attacking the special counsels. So talk about how great this is, because it says that, you know, we had nothing to do with this. And I think you will see more of that if you see anything at all. By the way, uh, sunny, uh, no chance of rain. Uh, that's the weather forecast around Mar-a-Lago, I'm told. Uh, Let's this see what weekend. happens. <laughs> okay. uh, everyone, thanks very much. Coming up next, and Shimon was kind enough to tease it for us, we'll talk to former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, who watched the entire Russia operation unfold in real time. We'll get his take on these indictments, the president's claim of vindication. And later, is there 
A chill between the president and first lady now that word of another alleged affair has surfaced, along with details of how he allegedly kept it quiet for years. We'll talk to the reporter who broke that story, Ronan Farrow, also tonight. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. More now in the breaking news that special counsel Robert Mueller has indicted 13 Russian nationals and three Russian entities for meddling in the 2016 election. It was last May that all of the nation's intelligence chiefs told a Senate committee they had zero doubt that Russia had played a role in that election. Do you believe that the January 2017 intelligence committee assessment accurately characterize the extent of Russian activities in the 2016 election and its conclusion that Russian intelligence agencies were responsible for the hacking and leaking of information and using misinformation in order to influence our elections. Simple yes or no would suffice. I do. Yes, sir. Yes, Senator. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes. Yes. Well, James Clapper was the director of national intelligence throughout all of 2016 campaign. He joins us now. Uh, director Clapper, I know you read this indictment. Just generally speaking, what, what struck you? Well, first, uh, it was a very compelling uh, um, reinforcement, validation of the intelligence community assessment that uh, we published and briefed then President-elect Trump on, uh, in, in January of 17. And it followed exactly the, the, th- the themes that we outlined in that and what the Russian objectives were. First, to sow doubt, discord, undermine our system, undermine the faith and trust of the American people in our political system. Secondly, do whatever they could to hurt Hillary Clinton. And thirdly, help uh, Donald Trump. And, of course, that, as we saw, it kind of evolved over time. And so what you see in the indictment, in my view, is a validation of that. I should point out, of course, we had, that was an intelligence assessment. We had very high confidence in our findings. This actually is even a higher evidentiary bar. Because it's legal, because it's actually indictment. Exactly. It's probable cause, which we don't, you know, that, that's a pretty high bar in intelligence. But the fact that the findings were the same, uh, I, th- I thought was quite striking. The other thing, of course, is the tradecraft and the sophistication that the Russians, uh, which we had seen, and now it's spelled out for for all to see. So uh, I thought it was a very, very damning and compelling document. What's stunning to me about what you just said is that essentially you're saying you and the other uh, members of the intelligence community briefed the president uh, a year ago on this in the broad strokes of, of this, so he's known about this for the past year, yet has continued to, to call it a hoax, has continued to say it's a, a ruse. Uh, and according to, I think it was either the Washington Post or New York Times, has not held a cabinet-level meeting about what to do about Russian interference. If this was an, a past administration, Republican or Democratic, you would think the president, immediately upon his Justice Department laying out these, these incredibly serious oh, informational warfare, as the Department of Justice called, would talk about how we're manning the barricades, what, what we are going well, to do. Well, that's what's so disturbing about this, is the threat that is the Russians are posing and, we, and which they're going to continue uh, to pose uh, to our, our, our basic system. And the president, his singular indifference to this is really a peril to the country. And, and to me, that transcends whether there was collusion or not, all that. That is significant, sure, if that is proven to be the case. But what's a greater danger to the country is the lack of response to this. They haven't punished the Russians. We're not we don't have a whole government approach to defending ourselves against further such uh, attacks. And the Russians are going to keep coming at us. I I, I don't want to get too personal, but for a president who likes to call himself strong and whose supporters say, well, he's all about strength, he's strong. He has a weakness, which is he's not a very good poker player. Any any foreign leader knows that 
his weakness on this is that any talk about Russia he views as an attack on his legitimacy. It's a, it's a, it's a huge, glaring weakness it is. that he cannot separate himself from what is needed for the good of the country. And this came up when we, uh, the four of us, briefed uh, the, then-President-elect Trump on the 6th of January last year. And well, the way he took this and the way he interprets this, this, this is uh, questioning the, the veracity or validity of his election. It, did, did he, to your, like, in that meeting, yeah, I mean, that, he, that that's how he up, took it? That came up then. Right. And that, that's really what, uh, and I think that's what occasioned the attacks on us as Nazis and all that sort of thing for uh, trying to advise him uh, as the oncoming president of a, a profound threat to this country. And, and he really hasn't changed uh, his tune. You know, his tweet today was about him. Didn't say anything about, hey, this is a threat to the country and we need to do something about it. It's whether, you know, there was collusion or not. And I actually, as a result of reading this uh, damning indictment, I, I think there may be other shoes to drop there, too. I don't know. Because this indictment was so specific in the, in the language it used, um, saying, you know, in, in this indictment. It- exactly. And what you see here is another manifestation of the very methodical, systematic, disciplined approach that... Uh, uh, Special Counsel uh, Mueller, Bob Mueller, and his team are, are taking. And I think there are other shoes to drop here, uh, n- notably uh, the finances. I, 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 th- I think that's going to be uh, another um, uh, profound thing that's going to come out about this. What, what were the financial uh, relationships uh, between the Trump organization before the election and then, and then, and then the Trump campaign. Well, that's one of the fascinating things about this indictment today. And to your point is you start to understand why he selected the attorneys, the law enforcement people, the intelligence special all that he did. People who are experts in money laundering, people who are experts in cyber activities, uh, intelligence activities. Exactly. They were all selected for a reason. And it's more than just what was in this indictment. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, as, as we've often said... Uh, Bob Mueller and his team know a lot more about all this than is out there that we know. And I think there's much more to come. I didn't see any announcement about closing down the investigation after this indictment. Yeah. So no more talk about over by Thanksgiving, over by New Year's. Uh, It's going to go on. Uh, uh, Director Clapper, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Uh, Just ahead, the FBI admits it failed to act on a tip about the young man who would go on to be the Parkland, Florida gunman. We'll have that, how that happened, how it can be corrected. Also, the president gets hit with news of another affair he allegedly had after Melania Trump gave birth to their son, this time with a Playboy model, a very detailed report on an effort to keep her quiet. Ronan Farrow joins me to break down his reporting next. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com CNN. Well, the first public story, it was the president and the porn actress. Now it's the president and the Playboy model. In The New Yorker, Ronan Farrow reports on a nine-month affair that Donald Trump allegedly had starting in 2006, just a few months after Melania Trump gave birth to their son with a Playboy model named Karen McDougal. I'm going to speak with Ronan in just a moment for more details on that alleged affair and his reporting and also accusations of a subsequent effort to keep uh, Ms. McDougal silent. The news of this broke today. The president and the first lady did appear together arriving in Florida. She did take a separate car on the way to that flight instead of getting in the helicopter with the president. CNN's Kate Bennett joins me now. Do we know when the first lady actually decided to head to Andrews Air Force Base separately from the president uh, by car as opposed to uh, choppering there, which doesn't seem to make too much sense just in terms of trying to get there? It was an unusual decision, and we heard very late the guidance that the White House put out had suggested that the two would be leaving from the White House together. We learned at CNN uh, shortly before that she would be taking a car due to her uh, schedule being an easier trip to drive there. There was nothing public on her schedule today, however. Um, We're certainly used to seeing the first couple walk across the South Lawn to Marine One before they leave on these trips to Mar-a-Lago. So it was certainly a last minute and somewhat, as you said, unusual decision. It also comes on the heels, of course, the First Lady riding separately to the State of the Union address just a couple of weeks ago. 
That's right. This is a first lady who's sort of charting her own rules here. We don't hear from her a lot. We certainly haven't heard from her about these uh, scandalous headlines that have been in the news in the past month or so. However, she's indicated some bursts of independence, like riding to the State of the Union by herself, another break in tradition. Typically, the first lady and the president ride together from the White House to the Capitol. Uh, she traveled to Cincinnati, but instead of going to the president's speech, she went on her own tour of the Cincinnati hospital. Again, this is a first lady who is um, certainly through her nonverbal cues expressing she and the president are not joined at the hip. We did not hear any Valentine's Day social media mushiness either between the two, um, although they are at, at Mar-a-Lago this weekend together. Yeah, do we know what their, the first lady's schedule is this weekend? I mean, do we have any idea when they'll, they'll make their next appearance together? They, they were both at a hospital this evening. Correct. We, we don't really. Typically, uh, when the First Lady heads to Mar-a-Lago, it's private, it's family time. She doesn't do public appearances. I am hearing that she's gearing up for a very busy march at the White House and April, which will include, likely, her first official hosting of a White House state dinner. Uh, but for now, there's nothing on the schedule for the President and the First Lady officially. All right, Kate Bennett, I appreciate that. As I mentioned, the report of this alleged nine-month affair with Playboy model uh, Karen McDougal broke in The New Yorker today. Ronan Farrow's report details how uh, the president and his allies allegedly used secret hotel room meetings, payoffs, and legal agreements to keep this and, in fact, multiple affairs out of the news. In McDougal's case, four days before the presidential election, the Wall Street Journal reported that the publisher of the National Enquirer, led by a personal friend of the president's, paid $150,000 for the rights to the story and then buried it. A story never appeared. In a statement, a White House spokesperson called this, quote, just more fake news and said, quote, the president says he never had a relationship with McDougal. Ronan Farrow joins me now. Interesting, Ronan, that the White House is now saying, well, the president says he didn't have an affair, as opposed to just saying, point blank, the president did not have an affair. You, you actually received notes that were handwritten by McDougal about uh, her alleged affair with then-citizen Trump. Can you tell us about when they were written and why? So those notes were written in the course of the selling of this story. And McDougal, I should make clear, says that she sort of reluctantly was cornered into selling it, that there were various individuals around her who, ur who urged her that she would lose the opportunity to tell her version of events if she didn't sell it. And she readily admits that she voluntarily signed these contracts, again, giving up her life rights story to talk about affairs with any then-married men. Um, we have other documents suggesting that that was very clearly Donald Trump. Um, but she also says that the end result was exploitative and onerous for her, that she has regrets about staying silent. And I think that is the important system that this story illustrates, that there was a machine set up to quiet women with stories of this type. We now know of multiple instances. There's actually a term that I think the National Enquirer Paris Company uses. I think it was catch and release. Is that right? Catch and kill is a term that's kill. used in the tabloid business. And what it means is this. When a company acquires the rights to a story with the intention of burying it, not running it. And, you know, AMI, the media company in this case, is very clear in saying we didn't run this because it wasn't credible to us. Um, you know, again, this is the company that owns the National Enquirer. Um, however, we talked to six former AMI employees who told a different story who said that this company routinely engaged in this kind of so-called catch-and-kill um, and that they did so to gain leverage and influence over powerful or high-profile individuals, in this case, the president, with whom the company has a close relationship. And, and I mean, some of the details of this uh, are reminiscent of details, uh, you know, locations, I think, of the Beverly Hills Hotel, a bungalow. You write that the president, uh, Citizen Trump, then actually introduced her to members of his family. Actually, she came to, to, to Trump Tower, to the apartment. What's striking about this narrative, Anderson, is that we now have multiple claims of either consensual affairs or non-consensual advances, um, as some women allege, and many of them have striking commonalities. Uh, McDougal's story, she talks about being offered money for sex, which she says she declined. Um, she talks about being offered uh, you know, a purchase of property, um, about tours of, of Trump's own properties. These are all common threads between these stories. And yes, she does say, as several of uh, the women who have come forward with stories and allegations against Trump do, that she met and interacted with the family at one point being shown, for instance, Melania Trump's uh, separate bedroom in Trump Tower when she visited there. And I think, according to your reporting, at one, uh, she was, uh, according to your reporting, was often invited to uh, to events that, 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 that Donald Trump was holding for various uh, vodka launch and, and the like, uh, you know, golf tournaments, uh, and at one point was actually seated at a table with one of the president's children. 
You know, the story suggests that, as as you say, these infidelities and the efforts subsequently to conceal the infidelities were very much entwined in Donald Trump's business operations, uh, his professional events, and his professional contacts, like his close relationship with this company, AMI, which the company and its head, David Pecker, have acknowledged on the record. That That is not a, a matter that's been hidden in any way. It was also an interesting detail that, according to your reporting, uh, McDougal was always asked to pay her own way uh, and then she says she would be reimbursed, re, uh, reimbursed by Donald Trump so that there wasn't, you know, a corporate uh, assistant helping with travel and the like. This story suggests a concerted effort and indeed a, a well-oiled machine designed to conceal this, um, both during and after the fact. And that does include, she claims that she was secretly reimbursed for travel throughout the affair. Um, you know, she talks about clandestine meetings in hotels, um, again, a, a phenomenon that very closely resembles what Stormy Daniels talked about in her story. Um, and, and also these legal pacts after the fact, which, you know, and we now know both Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal signed um, different variations. In McDougal's case, this was not directly with Trump's lawyers. This was with this media company. And, and explain just how McDougal met Donald Trump in the first place. McDougal and Trump met at a party at the Playboy Mansion in 2006. There was a taping of an episode of The Apprentice. You can actually go and watch footage from that episode in which McDougal appears in various scenes. Um, And, you know, she talks about being impressed with his politeness, being charmed by him, um, impressed by his intelligence, she also says. Uh, You know, mostly she describes a a relationship in which she was not mistreated in any way. She's very clear that it was consensual. Um, You know, but as I said... Her story corroborates multiple other accounts in very specific ways, and that includes some other women's accounts that involved um, non-consensual activity, allegedly. Uh, Ronan Farrow, I appreciate you talking. The, uh, the stories in The New Yorker. I, I encourage people to look at it if they're interested. Uh, thanks so much, Ronan. Coming up, a remarkable admission from the FBI that it was told in early January of suspicious activity by the high school shooter in Parkland, Florida, and somehow failed to pass on the information. Details ahead. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Well, tonight, the funerals have begun. The survivors of Wednesday's tragedy at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School are obviously still wrestling with what happened and will for a long time to come. Today came news that, if possible, is making the suffering even harder to bear. CNN's chief investigative correspondent, Drew Griffin, tonight has more. Tonight, a startling admission from the nation's top law enforcement agency. Just six weeks ago, a tipster called the FBI tip line and warned them about the possible school shooter. The caller provided information, the FBI statement reads, about the shooter's gun ownership, desire to kill people, erratic behavior, as well as the potential of him conducting a school shooting. What did the FBI do? Apparently nothing. In the statement released hours ago, the FBI admits it did not follow protocol. The tip never made it to the Miami field office, never made it to the agents who could have possibly followed up. On behalf of myself... And over 1,000 employees of the Miami field office, we truly regret any additional pain that this has caused. The attorney general now demanding an investigation. It is just one more warning sign missed on the path the confessed killer was taking that led him to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School this past Wednesday. Newly obtained records by CNN show the Broward County Sheriff's Office was called to the shooter's home more than 30 times since 2010. In 2016, during one of those calls, an incident report shows deputies and mental health professionals wrote the suspect suffers from mental illness, was seeing a therapist, and according to the report, he has mentioned in the past that he would like to purchase a firearm. Despite reports from his mother that he was cutting his arm, a therapist on the scene deemed him to be no threat to anyone or himself at the present time. Fellow students tell CNN the shooter was strange, constantly acting up in school, getting in fights, and eventually expelled. Joshua Charo says he and others felt the danger had passed. You thought he would never come back to the school? I think no one knew he would come back to the school. 
Charo, 16 years old, spent a year in ROTC class with the shooter, a student, he says, that was quiet, except when it came to talking about guns. He always liked to talk about guns. He was always asking people what kind of guns were better, um, if uh, they knew uh, which model worked best for certain uh, hunting activities. Did he ever talk about hunting? Oh, yeah, a lot. He talked about hunting a lot. Uh, that and guns were usually the only two things he would talk about when we ever spoke. Charo says he lost touch with the shooter. Then, out of the blue, a message. He requested to follow me on his new Instagram before everything happened, like two or three weeks ago. That shooter's Instagram account, like his social media postings, in hindsight, all additional possible warnings. Now, in the wake of the mass shooting, police, the FBI, school officials, and students wonder what could have been done. Andrew joins me now with more. I understand you're getting some new information uh, just now. Yeah, we just found out the House Judiciary Committee and the House Oversight Committee, Anderson, asking for the FBI to come in and brief them how this tip that came in on January 5th could have been overlooked, why nobody followed up on that. We're also reporting tonight, CNN reporting, that despite this now well-documented history of mental illness, this shooter, Anderson, bought not just one but five guns in the past year. Anderson. Drew Griffin, thanks for the reporting. Much more to come on this Friday night with so much breaking news. What President Trump is and is not saying about the 13 Russians indicted for meddling in the, uh, the elections when we continue. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.